Our first uh, scripture reading of the morning is from the very first book of the Bible. It's from the book of Genesis. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today, as we kind of continue our summer sermon series, which rolls on, uh, we're turning to the topic of marriage and sexuality and same-sex marriage. Now, I am uh, keenly aware of how this message has the potential to stir up strong feelings and rather intense reactions. This uh, subject is not simply philosophical, or even theological, it is for many of us personal. And I would imagine all of us here and those who may be watching know or have a relative or friend or coworker or acquaintance who identifies as gay, bisexual, same-sex attracted, or trans, which we will talk specifically about next month. And combined with the personal and then the constant push by what I'll call cultural elites to normalize these lifestyles, all of it makes for a red-hot topic that simply cannot be ignored. And like the other topics that we've had and the ones that we will yet discuss, whenever we're faced with this kind of a touchy subject, we need to discover what the Bible has to say. It's not just what I think. It's not just the opinion of some influencer or media pundit. Should not be the view of a celebrity. We need to discover what the scriptures have to say. And the way that I would like to do that is with our second scripture reading of the morning. And it's coming to us from John's Gospel, the eighth chapter, verses two through 11. Again, I invite you to follow along on the screen. Early in the morning, he, meaning Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now... What do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not <coughs> sin again. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. Father God, there are voices all around us clamoring for our attention and allegiance. And these voices seek to distract and derail us from your best intentions for our lives. Help each of us to hear your voice. Come and be our teacher so that we may be instructed by the truth of your word, which points us to Jesus Christ, who brings us hope and gives us a brand new start in life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, our story from John begins with this minor commotion, and it erupts into a major uproar. Several well-built men drag a biting, kicking, scratching, screaming, negligee-wearing, red-faced-with-shame woman who they then deposit at the feet of Jesus with an inelegant thud. And one of them says, Ah, so sorry for the interruption, preacher. We're from the Pharisees' vice squad. This female suspect was apprehended in the act of committing adultery. We saw the whole thing. It was disgusting. Now, you just need to know that I've had sermons interrupted by somebody with a coughing fit, by a fire alarm going off, by a person fainting at the sight of their own blood, and even by crying babies, but never because of something as dramatic as this. And so then Jesus must turn his attention to this hotbed of emotions. Now, first, we have the woman. She's not a prostitute, but a married woman. And the charge is, give me a gulp, adultery. This woman was participating in what she thought was a, quote, discreet affair only to be burst in upon, seized by the Pharisees' goon squad, paraded through the streets, and then unceremoniously dropped like a slab of meat right in the middle of a religious meeting. Her lipstick-smeared face is flushed with shame, and her downcast eyes blink back the tears. Now, from this woman, Jesus turns his eyes towards the faces of those smug, self-righteous accusers and their shifty eyes and insipid smiles expose them to the fact that this whole thing is just one big setup, an event carefully orchestrated to try and trap Jesus. And in a sleazy voice, they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And then John, the gospel writer, sort of throws in his two cents with an editorial. 
It says they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. This woman is just a pathetic pawn in a much bigger plot to try to get Jesus because if it's justice that the people want, okay, then where's the man? Experts will tell you that adultery is a very difficult event to engage in by yourself. You sort of need a member of the opposite sex. So where's Casanova? Again, you need to understand this whole thing is one big setup and it seems to be working like a charm. Because if Jesus agrees with a strict reading of the words of Leviticus and says, go ahead, stone the woman, then Jesus' reputation in his ministry as a friend of sinners would have evaporated. From that time on, Jesus would have been persona non grata to tax collectors, to the outcasts of society, to people like you and me. But if Jesus goes against the scribes and Pharisees and just says, listen up, the, the, the book of Leviticus is simply bad law. Well, then the people would say that Jesus was teaching people to break the law, to look for loopholes, that he was condoning and even encouraging people to commit adultery. And if that's the case, then how in the world can Jesus be the Messiah? And so behind their phony masks of concern, the Pharisees are licking their chops to see what Jesus will do. There's a third set of emotions that Jesus has to contend with, and that's the crowd. Nothing would please this God-fearing, church-going group more than for Jesus to say, do what you want with this woman. Nothing would cement for them more that Jesus is the Messiah than if he said, go ahead, stone the woman. Because this would confirm for them that Jesus was the Messiah, a mighty military and political giant who by simply waving his hand and clearing his throat has the authority to determine people's life or death status. It was a real tension convention that day. If you were in Jesus' shoes, what would you do? It seems like we live in that same kind of tension today. When it comes to the issue of marriage and sexuality and same-sex marriage, it is a divisive issue in the church. And then it sort of becomes this litmus test between biblical faithfulness and Christ-like love. And whenever an issue becomes a litmus test, we often wind up listening to sound bites, reducing the discussion, reducing the conversation to, are you with us? <laughs> Are you with them? Well, nothing is ever heard in a vacuum. And I, this morning, am speaking out of a specific situation in which the Presbyterian Church, USA, voted to change the book of order to now read marriage involves a unique commitment between two people, traditionally a man and a woman. I am speaking out of a societal situation from the 2015 Supreme Court 5-4 decision to make same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. I also am aware that I may be speaking into your own situations because for some of you, this is a deeply personal issue. And then you just need to know that I'm speaking from my own personal position 
that kind of goes into where I've come from on this issue. So as we delve into this red hot topic, a question for us to wrestle with is this. What do you think Jesus Christ believes about marriage? Now, having said that, I think it's a pastor's job to faithfully proclaim God's word, but it's also important for me transparent and for you to sort of deserve what I believe. And you certainly don't have to agree with me, but I do hope that you'll hear me out. As I said, my children are in town because this afternoon at 4.30 at Riverdale Manor, I will have the privilege of officiating at the wedding for my niece, Olivia. So let me share with you two convictions that arise out of study and prayer. First, I believe that Jesus believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, there are those who may say that Jesus never spoke against same-sex marriage, and that's true. But that is what theologians call an argument from silence, and that is not really the best way to do biblical interpretation. Jesus did not specifically address issues like abortion, guns, domestic violence, drug and alcohol addiction, or why the New York Mets have not won the World Series since 1986. What is true is that Jesus was once asked a question about divorce. And now Jesus steps on my toes. And he steps on some of your toes too. Because in order to talk about divorce, he says, I'm going to have to talk about the nature of marriage. And I love the way Jesus does it because I think it's much healthier as a church to talk about what we are known to support rather simply than what we oppose. God has created ordered and blessed the covenant of marriage, and it is a gift from him. And so, quoting Genesis 2, which I read earlier, Jesus says this, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning, male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. That's from Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. I believe that this is God's definition of marriage. It's what I share when I officiate at weddings. It's what I will say this afternoon when I officiate my niece's wedding. Within the context of marriage, God has given us a one and only pattern. One man and one woman and a lifetime bond of covenant faithfulness. Now, one reason why Jesus did not have to speak very much about this is because there was massive consensus on this matter within Judaism. And Jesus was a faithful Jew who certainly would have upheld what the scriptures taught. It was much different in the Greco-Roman world as they celebrated caring, mutual, same-sex relationships. The Apostle Paul was keenly aware of this and these practices because it was much more prevalent and there was less consensus on this issue. And so he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that God prohibits all sexual relations between people of the same sex, men and women. My second conviction is this. 
Jesus deeply loves those with a same-sex attraction. And that love always seems to come out the strongest in the gospel with those who are struggling, with those who are hurting. I don't know many personally, but I do have some gay friends, and I don't recall any of them ever telling me that this is a lifestyle that they would choose. And just so you know, I am not smart enough to know if it's nature or nurture or a little bit of both. I don't know. What I do know is that it's a struggle. And I think I know enough that sometimes the church can make that struggle even worse. What I do know is that Jesus does not want us to throw rocks at those who are seeking and struggling to try to find God's will for their life. Jesus stands tall with this woman in John chapter 8 as an advocate. He says, if you want to throw a stone, then you're also going to have to throw one at me. Jesus stands with this woman because he loves her. And he's calling her, her accusers, and the crowd, us, to grace. All people are broken with sin. All people are in deep pain, are in desperate need of God's grace, mercy, and redemption. But it's not because someone is lesbian or gay or bisexual or even transgendered. It's because we're all human. And I'm human. And my heterosexuality and my straightness are also crooked with sin. I need God's healing power too, just like you do. Everybody knows John 3.16. Everybody loves John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We love that verse. Well, John 3.17 is really just as important. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, isn't that the church's mission? It's not to condemn the world for being the world, but to save in the power of Jesus Christ. I would have loved to have been as smart as what Jesus did next in our story. In verse 6, if you're following along, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Some scholars believe that Jesus was taking names of the people there and writing them on the ground. Others say that he wrote the sins of each person there to to expose them of their self-righteous hypocrisy. Well, whatever it was, it worked. Now, what's interesting to me is that not only did Jesus write in the sand, but that he had to bend down. Jesus bent down. He came down to our level. Why? In order that his grace might lift us up. Well, unfortunately, his enemies don't back off. They smell blood in the water. They continue peppering him with questions until Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, let anyone who is among you without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, guys, let's uphold the book of Leviticus. Let's do that. But let's make sure that first we have a qualified executioner. All we need is one person out there who's without sin, and then we can stone this woman to death. So he asked, who's it going to be? You? 
You? You? You up there? It's not going to be anyone in the crowd. That person is actually Jesus. He is the qualified executioner. He is the only one who could rightfully throw a stone, but he doesn't do it. He won't. And it's not because he's letting this woman off the hook. You see, sin is serious business. And the penalty must be paid for. And the good news is that Jesus himself will pay the cost of that sin and all of our sins on the cross. Now, when it comes to sin, Jesus reminds all of us rock throwers that we're really not much different than this woman. The only sound that you hear in the story is the kathunk, kathunk, kathunk of those rocks dropping out of the people's hands and to the ground. And then Jesus cracks a smile and says, hey, lady, where did everybody go? Has no one condemned you? And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. What Jesus says to this woman is what I'm calling, if you look at your bulletin, the gospel in stereo. I was listening to some music recently on my phone when the, the, the sound in the left earbud of my headphones was crackling with static. And I tried to fiddle with it, and then it just stopped altogether. And the only sound that I had was coming out of the right earbud. And the sound was not nearly as good or as loud. And I could not hear some of the instruments because I was not hearing it in stereo any longer. Jesus delivers to the woman words that we need to hear come out of both speakers. And Jesus' stereophonic work is on display for everyone to see as he gives grace to the woman caught in sin and the truth that Jesus needs to be for her, the way, the truth, and the life. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go your way, and from now on, do not sin any longer. It seems like Jesus' words should be our words. It seems like this should be Jesus' expectation of you and me. Let me be clear. I disagreed with the denomination's decision to change the language of marriage in our church's constitution. I disagreed vehemently with the Supreme Court's decision to change the status and make same-sex marriages legal in all 50 states. But I'm also, I hope, humble enough to realize that I don't have it all figured out. I'm still growing. I'm still struggling. I'm still trying to discern from the Holy Spirit what this all means in our 21st century context. So I continue to pray. I continue to read God's word. I continue to rely on the wise counsel of minister friends. So as I close, here is another conviction and commitment from me. I will by God's grace, to the best of my ability, do what Jesus said and did for this woman. To know what it is that I believe, but like Jesus, to lead with grace. And that means the conscience of my theological convictions would be to not officiate a same-sex marriage. I'm just not comfortable doing that in my heart. In fact, for me, it just would violate my ordination vows. But here is where it does get a little bit tricky.
If I were invited, I would probably go to the wedding, bring a gift, eat some cake, and maybe even try to dance. I will also baptize babies of same-sex couples because I would not want to withhold the grace of Jesus Christ from that child. And I will stand tall and proud as an advocate of those who are hurting because Jesus did, and I believe that that is what Jesus would want me to do. And I commit, best I know how, with a lot of questions, to loving, nurturing, and pastoring anyone from the LGBTQ plus community that may already be here or who comes to the doors of this church to visit with us because the ground at the foot of the cross is level and we are all in desperate need of Christ's grace. And hopefully along the way, remembering those words of Jesus that he says to you and me and that he wants us to go forth and say to every person we meet, neither do I condemn you. Now go your way, and from now on, do not sin any longer. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Lord God, you have led us all through many uh, trials and struggles, and here we are once again, asking you to bring us clarity so that we may live in your truth and grace. As we sit with you in our anxiety and brokenness, may we hear you say to us what you said to that woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and do not sin again. If we truly listen to you, then we can embrace your word and go and sin no more. And so draw us together Unite us so that the world may see that what bonds us together is not because we always agree on every social or political issue, but what bonds us together is our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. May our attitudes and actions beautifully reflect grace and truth, sprinkled generously with a bumper crop of your fruit of the Spirit, particularly in our relationships with gay friends and family. For those who struggle in this area, we pray not judgment nor condemnation. We ask that you draw them to a place of submission to your lordship. Help them to discover the freedom and identity that comes in being your son or daughter. Oh God, expose us to your truth. Expose us to your grace that we might follow you all the days of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.